0: So we are recording with a special guest today on the eve of what we could call the apocalypse, a.k.a. November 8th of the U.S. election. I am safely on the other side of the 49th parallel in Vancouver. Uh, but we're very excited to welcome you back to another episode of PhD's podcast. We're a podcast about academia, culture, and social justice across the STEM-humanities divide.
1: I'm Dr. Zain Yao. And I'm Dr. Liz Wayne. And today, and we have a special guest with us who is also joining us with this uh, pre-apocalyptic uh, <laughs> party, um, Rahman Chowdhury. Rahman is a ABD candidate and, as I just found out, has a very interesting position right now as she has a full-time job and she's also finishing her thesis so, and in fact, you just turned in something today, right? I did. Right? You just it
2: turned in. Your draft. I did, and it feels as anticlimactic as it does every time.
1: <laughs> it does. They always they never tell me no. that.
2: How are you doing today, by the I'm, way? I'm all right. Um, uh, you know, good explanation of my background, Liz. So yeah, I'm a I'm a working <laughs> data scientist. I actually teach, um, at a boot camp right now. I'm on mm-hmm. um. I have the best job. I, I we get a sabbatical quarter. We get like a paid sabbatical quarter, and the objective of our sabbatical quarter is to pursue an independent project in data science. So, I'm doing a lot mm-hmm. of um, JavaScript and learning to do visualizations in data. So, a really big thing in the data science world is communication. Um, but you know, sort of programmatically intense and beautiful visualization. So you guys have probably seen 538 since we were talking about the apocalypse that is the election. So all of their visuals, of course, or a, yeah. yeah, a good number of their visuals are done in D3, which is um, a really commonly used JavaScript-based visualization uh, programming language. So I'm doing that, and we could talk about some of the work I'm doing with that stuff because it's related to poli My goal is always to sort of tie in all the stuff that I've done. I don't want to abandon my political science background.
1: Yeah, there's, there's so much here. I, I already have at least three <laughs> questions. But um, <laughs> but I'm kind of curious, how did you... So you were talking about tying all of these mm-hmm. things in, data science, political science. Um, you're obviously doing some coding in there. So what did you start with? Um, so I like to say... What was your initial answer? Yeah, so
2: what, what I like to say is I've always wanted to... Understand why human beings do what they do using data, right? Um, my undergrads at MIT, so I'm one of those people mm-hmm. that likes to have things quantified and measured and statistically sound. But at the same I right, but but at the I same time, you. it's <laughs> like you know you want you want to under use this understanding in the larger world. Why do people take the actions they take, right? And, you know, the current election, uh-huh. there's a lot of trying to understand why people are doing things. And it's it's a, it's an exciting time for a social scientist, to be honest, because the last few years, the, right. the you know the population of the U.S. has gotten so interested in things like polling and stats and turnout and stuff that we've always gotten excited about, but nobody else cared about. Um, so it's fun okay. to see. Some, well, sometimes fun, sometimes not fun, to see people talking about the stuff um, that's so that's been such a big part of our lives. So data science is a really cool field. It's really new. Um, You know, you probably could trace it back to maybe only about 2008, 2007, maybe a little bit earlier, but not by much. Um, And it's using that, but in industry. So how do we use data and our collection of data with all these devices and just in general um, through our use of the Internet and uh, connectivity Mm -hmm. to make products and and do things that help people? So it's, you know, Silicon Valley likes to use the term being disruptive. Um, there's a lot of industries that have been disruption that, that that have been disrupted. Uh, you know, Uber is a really big example. Instacart, Postmates, just stuff yeah. that we think of all day long. They're all driven by data science.
1: Yeah. So let me ask you a question. What would you say the
2: difference is between a data scientist and a scientist who uses data? Not very much, to be honest. I mean, the earliest data scientists were mm-hmm. hard science PhDs. Um, the earliest data scientists were pure algorithms people who built things like recommendation engines. Um, I just gave a talk on recommendation engines. Now it's become more of a professionalized industry, so there are people coming with all these different backgrounds. Um, but that's why there are organizations like Meta's that are a, like a, a three-month boot camp. There are a lot of people with sort of the mm-hmm. hodgepodge of skills, and we just help them use those skills in the specific industries that we're talking about. So most most PhDs have the critical thinking background and uh, academic background to be a great data scientist. We just have to kind of refine those skills and sort of push them in the right direction.
1: Interesting. Because I'm asking because it seems as if data science is emerging into its own field and it's becoming this... So there are a set of rules and Mm -hmm. systems and um, logics, I guess, that that you build on. And that that does seem to be different than just me as a scientist and going, oh, I have some data. Yes
2: and no. I I would say Um, that just about every PhD student I've talked to that's worked with data has done things that are similar to the questions we ask in the data science industry. With us, the second half of it is learning how to be a slightly better programmer and write scalable code. So, you know, most of us as scientists will sort Mm -hmm. of take our data and use it in this small laboratory setting. And we can probably fit most of our data on our laptop or maybe in the cloud, but we don't think about everybody using this product that we've made or everybody accessing this model that we've built. But the basics are pretty much there. And what I love about Especially people who come from an experimental background, social sciences, especially policy science, really into experimental design. We understand the difference between a causal model and a predictive model, and you know we can tease out the why something happened, not just that it happened. And what's kind of funny to me is that data science is just starting to learn these things because it was a field developed by programmers essentially. So it's like taking these models mm-hmm. and then learning to scale them. And now they're starting to learn from social sciences on things like causal inference. So it's not enough to know what's going to happen. Now I want to know why it happens and how do I do that with my data and design these experiments. So if there's so many parallels with research that um, most PhDs are doing, no matter what the field.
0: I guess I'm curious, since the field is so new... Um, do you see the development happening more on the industry side than on the academic side? Because it sounds like there might not quite have been time for like departments to develop or like faculty to be tenured or uh, has it been developing both as in both academic and industry spheres at the same time at different rates?
2: Um, Academia, I think, is just slower to adapt than industry for many reasons. Um, What I will say is that I am seeing more Mm -hmm. and more Tenure track or uh, postdoc positions in data science. So Berkeley and Stanford, both of which are up here, are major contributors. Berkeley specifically, they've developed. They have a place called Amp Lab, and they've developed some of the infrastructure that we use in data science. So the, all when people talk about big data, the architecture behind it was pretty much built at Berkeley, um, and a lot of it's built at Stanford too. And industry then just use it, but they're right here, and they're very connected industry. What we're finding more and more is that data science is moving out of just being in Silicon Valley, and as such, more and more academic institutions are instituting it, and that's our biggest feeder into programs like METAS. It's that, you know, people have this, there's a disconnect between what they learn in school, whether it's a master's degree or a PhD, and learning to apply it in this industry, and there aren't a lot of classes yet to take, the other thing is the industry is evolving so quickly that even if you take a two-year like master's program and you try to do a degree in it, you're done in your two years and the industry looks totally different. I mean, I started two years ago and mm-hmm. it already looks really different. So it's really hard mm-hmm. to keep up with the pace.
1: Yeah. And I imagine it might be hard to even keep up with the ethics. How does ethics also keep yeah, up with that? Yeah, there's a lot... Um, mm-hmm. and privacy and security reasons because I remember I was actually just at a talk at the NIH and um, um, data science has made its way into cancer so uh, the geno- all the omics they just call it omics, I omics didn't know that. That's awesome. genomics uh, No really it's I, it's frequently just referred to as the omics because it gets really frustrating trying naming all the things they're trying to do but, patient databases and then for each patient um what is the genome of the tumors Mm -hmm. and the cells of the other things and um mRNA sequences cytokine sequences so like looking at all these things and they're trying to amass all of that data from all the patients they have and trying to get researchers to share that data and make this all work and one person commented that he said, Google, Amazon, mm-hmm. Netflix, they do this all the time. They are so already on data. They have the infrastructure. They know what you eat, where you bought it, what credit card you use, where you went after you bought it. I mean, there, there's so much information they know about it. And I remember his whole point was about saying how well these companies are, are how good they are at gathering data but it sounded so scary because it's like, wait, how do you know? Or why is it that people can know where I bought wine and then what I did after that? And like, how is that? Okay. Um, but, it, but, so it's just interesting how did, so that this it's moving so fast. It seems like it's possible mm-hmm. that the, those concerns are so, being left behind. Yeah. A few things. So
2: one, actually we talked since you, um, work in sort of health-related fields, you'll appreciate this. A lot of our models in data science were stuff that are taken from um, the healthcare industry. So, for example, disease propagation models are used to Mm. understand memes and, you know, what things trend on Twitter and, yeah, literally, right? So if you think about a meme as like a disease (laughs) or like a germ, right, Uh, you can use a disease propagation model to see (laughs) how it's going to spread. It's really interesting. So we borrow a lot of models from your world and yeah, it's pretty it can accurate be just calibrated right and that's why you know people end up huh. you'll see people in data science from astrophysics from all sorts of industries and their way of thinking about yeah. their data yeah. is really interesting when applied to other industries and you know I have a way of thinking about data because of my industry and that helps in some ways also so it's really cool Um, but to your main question on ethical data I'm really really big on ethical data practices Um, there are a bunch of really great responsible data organizations that are trying to develop standards Um, and you're right we freely give so much information that we don't even realize we give so browser cookies are a really good example there are entire companies and all they do is they take your browser cookies and they connect you on different websites, and they build a portfolio of who you are so that another company, when you log in, even if you've never been to that website before, not even log in, if you just visit their website, they can actually buy the information that creates your profile. Now, that sounds really scary, but to be honest, it's not as organized as Mm -hmm. it sounds. It sounds like, oh yeah, click a button and get it. Kind of iffy on how good and clean that information is and to date it's really just being used to try to sell you stuff and to be honest most people kind of like it it's sort of the reason why when you log on or when you go to a commerce website it tends to have stuff that you might like and that could just be based on really basic stuff like your ip address right so by your ip address i i can tell what city you're Mm -hmm. in and let's say i know you're in san francisco um, I know if it's raining today and I can offer you an umbrella, right? So just curate, you know, or if I know you're you're probably a woman, probably of a certain age, you go to the website and you'll see it's offering stuff that you like. I was, I was at a conference um, Called Open Data Science, uh, the Open Data Science Conference this past weekend, giving a talk, and mm-hmm. I joked about, and it was actually a talk on recommendation systems, and I was joking about how the more I do data science, the more depressed I get because I realize I'm not a special snowflake. <laughs> You're like, oh, my preferences are really easily <laughs> quantifiable. Like I fit into a bucket. Like I am a bucket. Okay. Let me tell you, companies know me.
1: Yeah. Or what about that one day where? You know, your statistics makes people think you're pregnant and you start getting things for pregnancy. You're like, no, I just wanted chocolate (laughs) and organic stuff.
0: I am very (laughs) amused that there are some websites like Facebook and Hulu who I think – think I'm a, like a young man, age um, like 18 your- to 35, because of the things I like. So I get advertised like men's um, shaving cream and also like really <laughs> dapper stuff. Like this thing called the Sprezza box, who's like for fashionable men. And I was like, yeah, I guess if I was a dude, I'd <laughs> My, be like, dude. My Netflix
2: watching preferences um, gets me a lot of guy stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm like,
0: <laughs> so I had a question related to um, what Liz brought up. I've been seeing a lot of press recently for a new book Mm -hmm. by data scientist, Kathy O'Neill, Weapons of Math Destruction. And for our listeners, I'm just going to run over briefly what her argument is. Um, But Kathy O'Neill talks about how people uh, use algorithms to evaluate consumers and workers, students um, based on data. And that her argument is that sometimes these algorithms go too far and uh, sort of fail to capture like uh, certain unquantifiable aspects and end up uh, reproducing, I guess, uh, systems of injustice through algorithms which are seen as objective but really aren't. Um, And I think that – so there's been sort of question about, like, um, how big data can be used to, I guess, create a better world. Is it um, the projects that you work on do, or does it help to just reproduce and quantify the old? So I
2: was wondering if you'd like to speak to the book or just to – this is where I, like, rub my hands together and become a happy social scientist. Uh, So (laughs) – (laughs) <laughs> well, because we've grappled <laughs> with these questions for so long in social science. Um, we build models to predict things and then we say, okay, well, what, what? why did this happen? What's behind it happening? And that's the essence of her book. So two things. One is I hate blaming the algorithms for human behavior. So like – Implicit in a lot of the language when they talk about biased data or biased models, it's as if the model is this entity and it's doing things, right? It's it's a baby. It does what I tell it to, right? I'm, I'm responsible mm-hmm. for it as a programmer. And that leads to my second point, which is really interesting because there is this shift in language and it's a reflection of us pushing off our moral responsibility. So I have a talk... Um, that I'm doing next week at this group called Women Catalyst and it's called Moral Outsourcing. And it's this concept um, that was talked about in sort of the early days of AI. And a lot of it comes up in AI. And the reason it does is that some of these – sorry, yes, artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence. The reason it comes up is some of the models behind Mm -hmm. artificial intelligence, Mm -hmm. we actually don't know what happens in them. So people talk about neural networks and artificial intelligence – it's not like our standard statistical models why I can tell you what's happening they actually they don't know it, it iterates and what it does you can get intermediary steps but we're not entirely sure what the how the computer is learning and that kind of scares us a bit as sort of lay people um, but you know implicit in that is well what are we doing are we just sort of shoving off our own moral responsibility onto a machine and then like you said propagating existing uh, structures of in- of inequality, racism, and sexism, and then saying, "Sorry, not my fault. The machine did it." And this is a this is something that political philosophy and theory have mm. struggled with a really long time. Mm. So there's this, and this is like I'm going to get totally non-quantitative, and this is where, this is why I get re- this is why I get really excited. Do it, do it. Okay.
0: I I I, I enjoy No, it absolutely. Of, so you have probably so read or
2: heard of Hannah Arendt, and she has she talks about uh, mm-hmm. understanding why not just, you know, why the Nazis came to power, but why everybody bought into it, right? And she has, she comes up, she comes out with this this phrase called banality of evil. And I equate it to like bureaucracy or the DMV, right? Everyone's DMV experience is awful, but every any given DMV employee will say, it's not my fault, I didn't do it. I didn't make the line long. I didn't make the computer slow. I, yes, but everybody contributes to it. And that was the whole thing with the banality of evil. When you, when, when, these Nazi workers were put on trial they would say something like I didn't kill the Jews I just fixed the trucks you know it's like yes but you fixed the trucks that like carted the Jews you know to concentration camps but they didn't see it mm. as their fault like they were all part of this working yeah. ecosystem So it's similar with these models do we just sort of shove off our moral responsibility? by saying, oh, the algorithm is biased. No, the algorithm's only going to do what I, I tell it to do. It's only going to be as smart as the human being behind it. And that's why um, there's also always a lot of talk of like, oh, we're going to lose all of our jobs because of robots and AI and data science and whatever. Um, and the answer is no, because we're always going to need humanity. Mm-hmm. We're always going to need the human aspect of things. You know, robots can nowhere near approximate they don't they, they don't have context they don't understand what it means to be black in Chicago right and what that may mean for your mortgage prices uh, sorry for your mortgage interest rate. <laughs> Well, and and I specifically say Chicago because they have a history of redlining. (laughs) So let's say you're trying to build a model, right? Let's say you're trying to build a model of Mm -hmm. whether or not someone should be approved for a mortgage. And one of those factors in there is where the person lives. So maybe not race directly, but implicit in it is race. So then you come out Mm -hmm. and say, hey, oh, these people should not get a mortgage. They should have a higher interest rate in part because of where they're from. But if you don't understand the history of where they're from and why it's like the way it is, then you're not going to understand that, yes, certain districts are systematically discriminated against and unfairly treated, and that's why they have lower home ownership rates, right? model's not going to know that. Only a human being knows that. Mm And if you so, want the model yeah. to know that, it's up to you to put it right. into the system. Absolutely. Right? Try to build it in. Into the code mm-hmm. somehow. Exactly. So when the output or comes to out, and it. you have to take a look at your data and see that, well, it's systematically discriminating against you know people in certain parts or certain regions. Um, try to figure out why. And, you know, a machine may not be capable of doing that, not quite yet, not really any model that I know of. It really, they really just they mimic people and you know it's uh, i i have this slide when i teach like data science 101 and it's a picture of um, you know derek Zulander mm-hmm. and you know it's it's like like let let's remember like let's remember what Do a model is like a model is an ideal representation right so it's it's a thing <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's supposed to be our reflection <laughs> yes. of you know maybe the platonic ideal of something or a representation of a thing that you can recognize that it is But inherent in being a model, it is not the thing. I just got like super deep there. I just got, got, Mm -hmm. that got critical.
0: (laughs) Excellent use of Zoolander as a pedagogical tool. I I just had a frivolous comment that like people who are afraid (laughs) of like Skynet and the Terminator, um, check out the subreddit shitty oh robots oh my god yes <laughs> i think and that goes a long way <laughs> Terms that, of- and that youtube <laughs> oh, channel where that girls. girl builds
2: robots to do useless things and they all fail like make her a pb and j sandwich oh yes oh my gosh yes also <laughs> <laughs> there, there's so I'm much editing really to be done here. i need
1: to do this i did not know
0: about these things yeah i know i'm sorry because like obviously even earlier on i was thinking um when you're talking about uh of course, data visualization, there's that mm-hmm. fantastic uh, subreddit. Data is beautiful. Yeah. Um,
2: no, no, data oh, sorry, is beautiful. That's a a little really bit of an
0: aside. Do you wanna talk a little Yeah. I was gonna say, um, do you wanna talk specifically like some of the work that you've done has a, a lot of applicability in terms of thinking about
2: social justice on many different yeah, levels? Yeah, so do you, want you know, like I said, I like projects? to tie in all my backgrounds and the stuff I do and a big part of data science and like I said, I've always really just been interested in why people do what they do using data because using data, we can then improve, just improve our lives. And one thing I love about Silicon Valley and, and you know, hacker culture is that people are really open to new ideas and new things. Um, so I actually have a hackathon coming up in two weeks at Metis. We mm-hmm. partnered with, mm-hmm. with a group called Invisible Institute. And there's publicly available data on uh, police complaints filed by citizens uh, for the city of Chicago. Yeah, for, for at the individual police officer wow. level, going back ten years, and it's you know we're helping them uh, make this data accessible. <laughs> they already have a website. It's citizens uh, CPDP, Citizens Police Data Project. Um, and you could take a look, and they've been they've been talked about in okay. you know the New York Times, the New Yorker, 538, The Guardian. They've done some really impressive work. So I'm really proud that we are gonna do a hackathon for them. So in the hackathon, we're doing three things. One is building out some data science models. Um, two is helping them refine, they have a Twitter bot and helping them build out the functionality of their Twitter bot. And third is to help them do more data visualizations on their website so right now you can dig into the data and see a lot of stuff but there are so many ways in which data can tell a story with a picture in a way that I couldn't tell you in words and that's that's our goal and that's uh when is that that's November 19th so you can come find us and if anyone's in San Francisco it'd be awesome to have you there
1: when you're talking one of the things I'm thinking about is how did you get involved in this and in particular I want to ask you about coding because you know there are a lot of movements to get women to code and I'm kind of curious if the fact that data science is a new field has made it easier to get into coding in this way rather than like I don't know the other avenues of like apps and yeah you know, so other um, coding you have
2: to worlds. no you Well, you have two really important subtexts to your question. So one, women in the industry, and two, educational, I guess, outreach or availability. And one thing that's awesome about data science is literally everything we learn you can find online. Now, the only limitation is sort of human beings and most people I know and especially my students who take the boot camp are like, yeah, I took all the courses but it doesn't gel and it doesn't come together until you're in the classroom setting. But what's awesome is that you can go and satisfy your curiosity online and just look up all this stuff. So there's all these like free ways to learn how to code and program and then you can go to a lot of these groups. So you were talking about Um, women's groups so there are some really really wonderful organizations Uh, women who code um, there's Ladies for women who are learning Python Um, I know I'm going to be missing some we had (laughs) so we had a a really good representation at the Grace Hopper conference from Metis um, you know with a lot of these organizations and you know we've done a few events with them and they're they're just great it's just a really welcoming environment it's you know not that people and not that men are, are not welcome it's more that these aren't traditionally so okay I'm going to qualify that statement in a second but I'm gonna say it these aren't traditionally women's fields that being said some of the originators of programming and coding were women uh, until mm-hmm. it became profitable and then it was taken away from us and given to the dudes yes. but you know with that huge caveat. Yes. Um, you know, it's not always a friendly environment. Um, there aren't a lot of data scientists that are women. It's, it's rough. Mm-hmm. What's cool is that the industry is open enough to, because we experiment with everything, including trying to find diversity in gender and race and sexuality. Um, I see more and more women data scientists, mm-hmm. and it's awesome but there still aren't enough. I mean, I was at a conference, and I remember thinking in my head, oh, there's a lot of women here. Then, of course, I had to actually tally and do the math, and I realized that there was one woman for every table of eight people, and to me, that looked like a lot of women.
1: Yeah, and you're like, oh, there's so many women, yeah, and you're like, wait, no. I know that
2: feeling. It's no, are not <laughs> even near 50%. So, um, you know, Metis has a scholarship for uh, women, people of color, veterans, LGBTQ populations, but also, it's just great to go to these groups and have a support network especially when you're new and especially when you're new in a field that no one looks like Mm -hmm. you um however you would define that it's great to have a supportive community where you can fail and that's the thing right the hard part is being new and failing and if you can fail in a supportive community that's the best part
1: yeah so how would people get involved in this so i'm thinking of um do people have to have like undergraduate degrees <laughs>
2: in a STEM field, or are there? I don't have any of my degrees in a STEM field. <laughs> to be perfectly honest,
1: I'm just thinking I of mean, like and, how entertaining... and that. I
2: mean, I guess maybe it's my yeah. my master's probably counts as a STEM. Of course, I went to a very quantitative undergrad, and the policy I did was very quantitative. But yeah, I mean, on paper, other than mm-hmm. my master's degree, nothing appears to be STEM. So you know. I tend to poo-poo that. I don't think it's true at all. All I all I think you need is a certain kind of mindset. Um, when we interview candidates for medis, there's a a like a phone, not a phone, like a Google Hangout in-person interview with one of the instructors, and that's a lot of what I look for. Like. Our Mm -hmm. criteria, so we have, you know, an exam they have to take, you know, that shows, okay, you can program, you know, these things. And it's all stuff, like I said, you can learn on your own if you're motivated and driven. Mm -hmm. But what I look for in the in-person interview, we have these criteria. We say grit, passion, creativity. And these things are, and and communication. And these things are not just Mm -hmm. buzzwords for me. It's really important because you have to be okay with failing. You have to be okay with trying new things. You have to be okay with not knowing everything. It's really rough for a lot of us, like myself included, right? I just got used to like not always knowing everything and trying something out, even if it wasn't a hundred percent done, mm-hmm. right? Um, and those are skills, as is communication. So it's those are honestly, I think that yeah. a desire to learn, a sense of humility. Um, you know creativity of thought like these are what make good data scientists not just the stats and programming skills
0: yeah i'd like to also uh, bring this back to what you're saying earlier about the the biases inherent in algorithms that i think that this is a way that it shows that Diversity is not merely a buzzword, but actually goes much further in terms of like making an industry better, making practices better, because Mm -hmm. as you say, like um, data Mm -hmm. scientists is so dependent upon the data scientist who makes that. The more diverse a population of data scientists, the more only more complex, sophisticated,
2: more nuanced that data will be. And also, representation matters in so So. many ways in data science. So you were talking about earlier how you get recommendations for men's clothing boxes. Why you're you're not a woman with abnormal preferences? You're just not a woman Mm -hmm. that fits into the specific algorithm that the person created, (laughs) which. But but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. like it's it's okay driven by abnormal, maybe someone's inherent bias because <laughs> yeah. they think women should be yeah, watching yeah. chick flicks or oh, women don't like die hard. Why would women like that? you know it's these these biases mm-hmm. may be baked into
0: yeah. what yeah. was
2: built out in their recommendation system. I don't know, obviously, I can't say, but and there are ways around these things. but representation matters so much in the mm-hmm. room. So a really, really good example. Um, people here are really into something called quantified self. And, you know, you have, like, your Fitbits and your Apple Watches and all this stuff. And there's, like, an entire community of people mm-hmm. who are really into taking metrics about, like, bio data. Um, yeah. So, And there's entire community who try We're to optimize to things now. by running models mm-hmm. and measuring. Like, it's next level in Silicon Valley. <laughs> um, quantified self is, like, it's a big thing. Mm-hmm. But my point is that, yeah, you know, really I got is. my Apple Watch. And, you know, Apple's had their health app for a while. And one glaring thing that you notice as a woman is there is no period tracker. Oh, my Literally God. Literally every woman mm. tracks her period. Like, I'm sorry if it's not okay to talk about in polite it's company. Stupid. And it's, it, they have it, and it's stupid Oh, now. do they? I, I don't even know. I, I have sorry. an app called Clue, and I use that. But, like, wh- what? Hi, maybe oh. I should try that.
1: Like, the, I'm, I'm, I am I'm interrupting fine. you, but like currently – you can see the reproduction. It's, it's not a reproduction. Oh, yeah. Let's not even
2: get started about that because um, the only reason I care about my period is if I want to have a baby. Otherwise, it's irrelevant. So I can have a baby, right? And and then <laughs> so it'll
1: show you, like, the months, but there's no actual place to click add right now. Like, I don't know, maybe the update or something, but you can't put in when you had your period. It's like it's so anti – it's not helpful. It doesn't make yeah, any sense. Yeah, that's because sense.
2: it's not designed by women.
1: <laughs> I'm not that, even using because- it anymore. I really tried to use it. Yeah, like I,
2: then... I I would be surprised if any of that was designed by women. And you can see the the masculine minded impact of how it was developed. A, it doesn't it doesn't understand the way a period works that you may have cycles that are different. B, it you having your period is a function of mm-hmm. your reproductive abilities. Like there's mm-hmm. so much more to it than that, right? Uh you know, just like there's, you yeah. know, just, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I have this app called Clue. But the thing is, I had to download a third party app that recognized that gap and filled it. But why is there the gap in the first place? Right. Which is why you need women. In So another good example uh, is, you know, Airbnb while black, which, um, you know, you guys have probably heard. <laughs> you know, so uh, tackling issues oh, yes. like that or yes. even yeah. knowing that, yeah. that that is a problem only comes up if you have diverse representation on your team. It's not just, like, quotas and numbers. It's literally you have a better product. And I think that's why, at least up here, more companies are, are open to trying to find good talent from diverse sources, at least I hope they are, um, not just to not for mm-hmm. a PR stunt, but literally you come out with a better product when you do. Because, you know, the minute you have some sort of a good health app that will track my period not just in terms of reproductive health, but other things like everyone's on it we're all using it we all tell our friends about it because it's just it's missing
1: yeah sorry i i went on i went on the thing and for reproductive health it'll show you oh god you can't uh, even see that that doesn't
2: make just download sense. this app called clue it's really yeah. awesome it's it's a i will but
1: it's like basal yeah. body temperature like i'm measuring my temperature yeah, like, every day and- um, cervical mucus quality, I can, ta- <laughs> but mind ugh. so y- dry, sticky, creamy, watery, egg white, ovulation test results. you know, result. you're just, you're
2: just taking them.
1: And then you can track your sexual activity. You know what, now that you think about it, not a single one of these dots actually says when I can say <laughs> when I have my fucking period. None of them say that. Basal body temperature, cervical mucus quality, (laughs) ovulation test result, and then sexual activity. That's it. Like I'm gonna tell Apple when I've had sex. I I like the other.
2: uh, Yeah, I don't know.
1: What's up? But we can go back to no, no. We can go back to that. You
2: (laughs) know, but uh, but these are really great examples. (laughs) Like you literally come out with a better product. There are so many on. So from a completely like fiscal perspective, there are all these untapped markets. Right. So I mean Netflix caught on. You know, they mm-hmm. they have things like Jessica Jones and Luke Cage and everyone loses their mind. I mean, Luke Cage broke the internet. Like you can actually oh say God. Luke Cage broke the internet. Mm-hmm. Broke it. And who what major film studio is going or you know, TV production studio is going to take a risk on a show about a black man in Harlem who wears a hoodie and gets shot, you know, and is a superhero and is a black a mm-hmm. very, you know, black mm-hmm. superhero that, you know, brings up a lot of African-American issues in the U.S. That's just too risky for most studios. And Netflix really captured a market. And they actually do this all, a mm-hmm. lot of it with mm-hmm. data science.
0: It's interesting because I think now we're sort of talking about the way that what we think of being a more qualitative form that's obviously entertainment, arts related, can benefit from data in a way that doesn't make it reductive. Like I think that's often the fear from the humanities side that um, the encroachment of more quantitative mm-hmm. scientists often means a reductive approach, and this is an indication the way that it isn't, but can actually be
2: at, an opening at the very for least. New, I think diverse, it provides justification for the need for them, because you know you mm-hmm. can't if if you're base hypothesis or your base assumption is that i trust algorithms then if my algorithm says that there is a demographic of young african americans on netflix who feel that there is a show or that that don't watch a lot of netflix or whatever they watch these predominantly african american shows that provides justification for saying you know what we need a show that represents African-Americans adequately, whether or not you think Luke Cage does, um, and brings talks about their social Mm -hmm. issues. And if you have the assumption that, you know, the algorithm is telling you the truth, then you have justification for it. I'm Jessica Jones is another one, right? Uh, So like very unabashedly about, um, you know, like a a survivor's mentality. It's not just about a woman who's a superhero. Like it is about survivors of rape and, and, you know, major Mm -hmm. trauma. Mm -hmm.
1: I think um, even before Netflix is really, really hot, like back when I had DVDs sent to me, physical DVDs, which I actually didn't let go for a long time. Whoa. I think it was 20 last year before I actually finally let wow. go of my DVDs. But I don't know if you remember, but Community got, yeah. I think, canceled like one or two times, but it was because of their Twitter following. <laughs> that they could finally say, like, we have, okay, people like this yep. show, mm. so we're going to bring it back.
0: Yeah, hashtag five seasons in the movie. Right. And or six
1: seasons, I can't remember now. I, I do see that happening. Or um, likes on Facebook. I mean, I thought the like button was so stupid. I just didn't really see the merit. And then all of a sudden, likes meant something. Likes meant that um, I can get a book published because I have – ten thousand people who like my page, which means there might be ten thousand people mm-hmm. who might I mean, buy my book
2: or you anything guys else. Samus I on to a few sell. weeks ago and like I love Samus and I heard about her through, you know, people on Facebook and Twitter. Some of Samus's popularity and her ability to have this big reach is because of social mm-hmm. media. Um and also things like targeted media and being able to make these groups and, and stuff like that. And a lot of that's built out with data science along with engineering, but data science is behind a lot of the the testing, like what do people like, you know, do people like chatting in groups, do people like having more than just the like and dislike, you know, the fact that we have these smiley face emoji icons on Facebook finally, right, um, some of that, a lot, a lot of it actually comes from at least a good understanding of data if not data science itself. So Facebook was one of the first and one of the first companies to like really really invest mm-hmm. in their data science team and they did a really great job of it. Yeah. So
1: I'm I will admit data scares me. The the fact that people are collecting <laughs> data scares me. Um it scares me when I look at my phone and realize that when I get in my car it something automatically pops up and says 15 minutes until you get home. And I'm like, how did you know I was going home? I didn't tell you. I never told you where I lived. Who's watching me? And I'm trying to, like, take off all, like, the location services. And, I mean, things like that really, I don't like it. And so as a data scientist as someone who sees the real value of data for a society, what would be your best argument for trying to trust data? I think
2: we – yeah, no, I, I do. I, I think it should all be taken with a grain of salt. I don't think – and, you know, I, 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 read no. Well, well, first, okay, a couple of things. One, you know, I quoted Animal Farm at one of my talks that I was that that I gave, and and I mentioned Animal Farm and a lot of a lot of these books, like Nineteen Eighty-Four, because you know I don't implicitly trust industry, and I don't implicitly mm-hmm. trust even government necessarily to always want do the right thing. Not because their intentions aren't good, because sometimes the execution isn't good, right? Um, so no, I, I don't think you should just blindly trust what you're being told. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, I think we discount the mm-hmm. ways in which data and the things that have been built with data and data science have just made our lives so much better. So like, some, if you view something like Waze, right? Or even Google, like, do you remember a world before Google Maps? Like, I'm like, how did we get places, right? Like, just... I had to print out and and then like it didn't. Know, I didn't know traffic.
1: But listen, I am that person. I am still that person. I have a map <laughs> in my car, and I occasionally will wow, go GPSless and phoneless and will use a map and a North Star if I have to. Well, and to find and my it's way smart back to home. do that
2: because you know, You're like brave you woman. don't have to implicitly always woman. trust the algorithm or always trust. Well, I don't want to lose my common yeah. sense.
1: That's yeah. and part but of It's also,
2: you know, if you are, let's say, in a rush and don't have the luxury of time, isn't it nice to know that taking one freeway will be 10 minutes faster than your usual way because there is an accident and you wouldn't have known that otherwise? Yeah. So things like oh, that. Ab- or just, you yeah, know, I guess the fact that you go on Netflix and you're automatically presented with a whole bunch of stuff that you're likely to want to watch. Like, that's awesome. <laughs> you know, it's... Mm-hmm.
1: And I get to be mad at someone when I can't find something. We had the
2: paradox of choice. Like, give people five options and they can pick something, give them a thousand and they can't pick anything. That happens to me a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: I'd also say that for people who are afraid of that type of data, like, while data science, um, as Ruman said, is a new field, like, you could see this as an extension of what in the humanities we call biopolitics, which is, of course, a centuries-old mm-hmm. type of like managing of bodies. You could think in terms of census, in terms of populations, like all these technologies like emerging, what we, we, what we think of those being very old times, but this is just a newer iteration mm-hmm. of these Absolutely. things like, which have always existed. I mean, I, I referenced redlining earlier that was based on putting up
2: maps and understanding populations and where certain demographics mm-hmm. lived, and they needed that to go collect so the data true. and use the data to do it.
1: So um, I'm so, going to get there. Um I'm going to try to trust my phone, Take,
2: but... <laughs> Take away data. Don't be scared, but don't don't implicit... Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, what I would also say is there's... I, I think there's, as a result, a lot of growth in responsible data. So you were talking about healthcare, and I think mean, healthcare is a really big industry in which people want to automate things. They want to put things in databases, and obviously there's so much inefficiency that can be mitigated through things like electronic medical records, but it's mm-hmm. also scary. You need to make sure that people's information is kept private and, um, you know, that the wrong information doesn't go to the wrong place. I mean, there's so many security measures to put into place before before you can just start um, you know, throwing people's information up on a cloud server somewhere, right? It's, this isn't the same as saying, I know what you watch. This is saying, I know if you're able to conceive or I know if you have cancer.
1: Yeah, no, I was just thinking about the last, I've been going to a lot of talks about cancer and healthcare and and about this very ideal idea because, um, as an example, a lot of people when they get cancer treatment, where they get their diagnosis mm-hmm. is not often the same place where they get treated and then you have a primary care physician and you have an oncologist and then you have a radiologist and then there is a the pathologist and then there is a person doing the actual imaging and these people don't ever talk to each other and there's the patient they all ends up being business. very lost um, <laughs> but they all know your so business and so there are people and so there are all people trying to make this system work where they can all share this data and then on top of that um, Medicine is a science, even though I don't think people want to believe that you're being scienced on, you're an experiment when you walk into the hospital. But the fact of the matter is, is that people are also trying to think, how can we assess all of the data from the thousands of patients we have treated to make patient treatment better for future people? And to do that, we need to actually mm-hmm. be able to get data from North Carolina and then the Wisconsin system and Washington system, but they all have their own systems and you gotta figure out how to get them all together so that we can look at all the patients and then be able to say, hey, as an example, why aren't, why aren't Asian women being told that they can get cancer and why are they being screened? Why aren't, um, why are these uh, um, racial discrepancies ha- happening? Um, why aren't people being screened for colon cancer? Why aren't they being... So there, there are things you can answer, but you need the data to do that. And when I go to these talks, the majority of the problems they have are about how do we get the data and then how do we get people to ask right. the and same questions so we can compare that's the scary data with part, each right? other. Because implicit so there's so standardization
2: much of this. is that there's this one entity that holds the key. They design the questions, they hold the data. Because standardization would mean all the data would have to look the same. Mm-hmm. In order to all look the same, you have to all sort of subscribe to the same system. So then you're like centralizing... Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and then also that's kind of scary because then, works. you know, you have this one body kind of in charge and that's, that's, a, that, that can be a scary thing, mm-hmm. but you know, like it, it's so valuable to have that information. Um, cause at all the questions you just said, like, you know, mm-hmm. why do Asian women get told certain things and on others, why do some people get discriminated against? Nobody, you know, very few people believe or recognize the fact that they have bias. We all do. And right? I do, you do, right? Like, We all have biases. The point Mm -hmm. is systematically understanding what they are and recognizing them so Mm -hmm. that maybe if you're a doctor and you know that on average doctors tend to dismiss, um, you know, women when they say they they think they're having chest pains um, because that's a thing. So then, you know, you're like, wait, no, I know that that's a problem. Let me ask again, Mm -hmm. you know, or let me dig more into it. Is that my bias at play or, you know is this patient actually just hysterical or overreacting to something? Um, it, that's really what's important. I think the fear is that like everything has to be perfect because it's pointing out all these flaws. And that's not the point. The point is it it helps to fix what you can fix. Um, I was thinking that
0: maybe a nice note to end on is the fact that you've consulted on so many different um, interesting issues that show the applicability mm-hmm. of data science. Uh, maybe as a good way to finish off the podcast, would you want to talk
2: about any one of them in particular? Um, let's see. I mean, I think a big thing of data science right now is a lot of the network stuff. So, um, my, Also, the network analysis project was really interesting. So, you know, what, what's what's really interesting is a lot of those projects, so that was my transition from academia to data science. So I think a lot of your listeners will be really interested in knowing how you make mm-hmm. the transition. It's really, really, really hard mm-hmm. to get a job in this industry. I mean, it is brutal. Um, and I think for a lot of PhDs, the skill set that they already have that's really strong going in is like I said, the sort of quantitative mindset, and analytical mindset, a scientific mindset. But then the stuff that needs to be built out is one showing that you can deliver a project to a client. That's a really big one, right? Because we're used to these very highbrow ways of speaking. We mm-hmm. don't think it's highbrow, to be honest. Like we don't, like I don't think it is when I talk about p values yeah. and r squareds, but you know, when you're talking to a VP of sales, like at, at the very best, they think they're intimidated by you or don't understand it. At worst, they think you're pompous, <laughs> and and that that that's what happens. Um, so for somebody transitioning, a good way is to build out a project portfolio, and that that's what I did with some of my consulting projects, and they were just kind of inherently interesting. So the the uh, the network analysis of adolescent um violent behavior was really cool. So the adolescent health database is something that's been used in, uh, it's a panel study that starts, um, I forget when, but it follows the same group of people over time. And um, what I had there were a couple of years of data on students and their likelihood to get into like some sort of an infection, like a fight or something like that, or get detention. And what we wanted to do, this was sort of in light of a lot of school shootings, and people wanted to understand mm-hmm. what makes certain students lash out, because there were a couple of things you had in common. They kind of tended to be around the same age, um, and and that was, and, you know, other than also gender, race, and sometimes, um, like, general demographics about where they were from. Um, one thing we really caught on to was the fact that it, it was in sort of this, like, high school, middle school, like, that, that sort of very... Uh, adolescent scary mm-hmm. time um, and what we wanted to look at was is there something about their relationships in school that could be an indicator of hey maybe this is a student a counselor might want to approach or someone should want to in- try to include or talk to um, and the network analysis is really cool so you've probably you've probably seen them before because they make really cool looking <laughs> visuals it just looks like a like fireworks okay. kind of and these fireworks, <laughs> so everyone is a dot, oh, and yeah, everybody yeah, you're connected yeah. to, it's like a line, mm-hmm. you've seen that before. Um, and then so you mm-hmm. make these like clusters of people, but then also what you'll find is there are these people who are just kind of alone by themselves floating in space. And, that, and we saw that that happens for a bunch of reasons. So, so fights in school and likelihood to get into trouble increases when you lose your friend network. And that happens the most between either uh, eighth and ninth, or ninth and tenth grades, depending on when you advance to high school. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's these transitional periods that make students nervous and you know human beings like the animals we are we need to establish our place in the hierarchy honestly it's fine to be a geeky nerdy x-files watcher comic book reader like i was in high school because i had (laughs) (laughs) i had geeky nerdy comic book reading x-files watching friends right and i played the volleyball team and i played an instrument and you know i had all these ways in which i had a network um and i had i had a, a place in the hierarchy and, and that's really what happens um, when students or when individuals get isolated, that's when there's a likelihood of reestablishing themselves with violence. So that was a really cool project. It was really interesting. Um, and it built on some pre-existing work that was super fancy and cool.
1: That is really cool and very interesting. Um, I definitely want to hear more about that. But, oh my gosh, we can't do it. Um <laughs> But I want to hear about all of it. This is so amazing. So um, tell tell me and tell all of our listeners, where can they find work about you? You've mentioned throughout the podcast you've given a lot of talks and you've done a lot of cool things. So where can they find more about you?
2: Um, I'm on Twitter at <laughs> um, I also have a website. It's just my name. Uh, and I blog and I post stuff. I'm pretty active on Twitter as well. But, you know, I guess it's just conference season here, um, and I'm just at, like, a whole bunch of stuff. So it was just at Open Data Science Conference last weekend. This coming weekend is another one called Machine Learning Conference. Um, And we're also, uh, my company, Metis, is hosting um, a workshop, like a day-long workshop, and, like, these neural nets I was telling you about. I'm also at, I think on the 17th, I'm at... Women Catalysts, which is a women's professional networking group, and I'm giving a talk on actually the moral outsourcing stuff that we were talking mm-hmm. about earlier. And then I'm at a conference on demystifying AI the weekend after um, on the 20th talking about using neural nets to build recommend, recommendation systems, and also I think I'm going to do a longer talk on my moral outsourcing. But if you want to come and join the fun, Medis is doing a hackathon, and it's sort of my baby, on the 19th. So, you know, San Francisco people, please turn out. It's, um, we're going to be go. I need to, be, I need to go to San Francisco
1: and know how to code. <laughs>
2: oh, oh, yeah. So, like, the thing is you could hop <laughs> from, like, meetup to meetup and just pretty much be fed. Oh. Like oh, I know day. how to do that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, it's, like, pretty much, like, being a grad student. Grad student skills. It's pretty much, yeah. it's also, like, being a grad student in that majority of time it's pizza.
1: Some things you never unlearn. And free pizza... Mm-hmm. And trying to run the fastest you possibly can when you get the email about the free food left over from the faculty meeting. That you don't forget. Right. So.
2: <laughs> but, yeah, so that's my main social media presence. Um, you know, and I'm always chatting with people anyway on Twitter. And you find me at a bunch of meetups. Mm-hmm. So.
1: And what's your next step? What are you doing after this?
2: Um. Well, I'm going to hear back from my advisor in about a week about my <laughs> dissertation. Uh, So I'm going to work on that. Um, I'm working on a cool project visualizing San Francisco city data. So I want to make something like a visual history of different cities. That's amazing. I'm originally from New York Mm -hmm. and I lived in New York City for a while. I also lived in Boston, San uh, San Francisco, and San Diego. So I think it'd be really cool to get data about all these cities and visualize trends over time. Um, so I'm starting with San Francisco. So I'm, that's what I'm working on for the next few weeks.
1: It's like humans of New York, that's but fantastic. like with data, data. <laughs> of San Francisco. You could do yeah. datas of <laughs> – um, <laughs> it, it could be something big. I support this. Yeah, and we'll provide links to everything
0: that Ramon mentioned because I'm sure a lot of our mm-hmm. listeners will want to check out our awesome work.
1: And yeah, you're amazing, Amazon. you're cool, I want to be best friends with you, and oh, I want to talk to you for hours and hours, <laughs> but, <laughs> but we can't now, but we're going to talk again. And if I ever come to San Francisco, I will make sure to definitely
2: hit you up. Oh my gosh, hit me up, I live in the Mission. <gasps> I've heard
1: about the Mission! Yeah, that's like where all the hit, the, like the um, professionals and grad students live. Yeah. Well, I mean... It's-
2: it is a cool place. Lots of really good food. San Francisco is known for its food. Well,
0: thank you very much, Roman. Um, it's been really exciting talking to you. Uh, for our listeners, please remember to like, follow, tweet at us, um, Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, all that type of great stuff. And thanks for listening to us yeah. for
1: another episode. Bye. Bye! I love how I raise my hand Bye. by like, oh, they can see me wave at them, you know? <laughs>